And then there's Chicxulub. 65 billion years ago, an asteroid, or perhaps a comet, no one is quite certain, collided with the Earth on what is now the Yucatan Peninsula. Judging from the impact crater, which is 120 miles wide, this object, this big flaming ball, was some six miles across. When it came down, day became night, and that night extended so far into the future that at least 75% of all known species were extinguished, including the dinosaurs, and nearly all their forms in array, and some 90% of the ocean's plankton, which in turn devastated the pelagic food chain. Hello, this is Brian McHale, professor of English at The Ohio State University and a founding member of Project Narrative, and I'd like to welcome you to the Project Narrative podcast. In each episode, a narrative theorist selects a short narrative to read and discuss with the host. The person sitting across from me in the guest chair today is Jim Phelan, who up until now has occupied the host chair in this series of podcasts, but today we've changed the seating. Welcome, Jim. Thank you, Brian. Jim is one of those people who we customarily say needs no introduction, but of course, everybody needs introducing to someone. So for listeners who might not have encountered him before, Jim is Distinguished University Professor of English at Ohio State and Director of the Medical Humanities Program. But more than that, he's long been a mainstay of narrative studies here at Ohio State, nationwide and worldwide. Without Jim, I'm not sure where the organized academic study of narrative would be in the United States, and I'm pretty sure its organized study at Ohio State would be nowhere. He's one of the co-founders of Project Narrative and its current director. He's been instrumental in the global success of the International Society for the Study of Narrative, not least through his long service as editor of the Society's journal, Narrative. And he is a recipient of the Society's Wayne C. Booth Lifetime Achievement Award. Jim is the author of seven monographs on aspects of rhetorical of the rhetorical approach to narrative, most recently Somebody Telling Somebody Else from 2017, and he's published something like 175 essays. Jim also plays well with others. He is co-editor of the Theory and Interpretation of Narrative book series at the Ohio State University Press and co-editor or co-author of 10 books, most recently the collaborative volume Fictionality in Literature, forthcoming from OSU Press. Among his many other talents, Jim has a keen eye, or maybe good nose, for stories that invite and reward the narrative theorist's close attention. The story he selected for today is a case in point, Chicxulub by the prolific American novelist and short story writer T.C. Boyle. Boyle's career began all the way back in the 1980s, and he shows no signs of letting up. He's published 16 novels and something like 100 short stories, now collected in two fat volumes. Chicxulub appeared first in The New Yorker in 2000, then in Boyle's story collection Tooth and Claw in 2005, and it can also be found in volume two of Boyle's collected stories uh, from 2012. So Jim, over to you. Thank you, Brian. Chicxulub by T.C. Boyle. My daughter is walking along the roadside late at night, too late really, for a 17-year-old to be out alone even in a town as safe as this. And it is raining, the first rain of the season, the streets slick with the fine immiscible glaze of water and petrochemicals, so that even a driver in full possession of her faculties, 
A driver who hadn't consumed two apple martinis and three glasses of Hitching Post Pinot Noir before she got behind the wheel of her car would have trouble keeping the thing out of the gutters and the shrubbery, off the sidewalk, and the highway median, for Christ's sake. But that's not really what I want to talk about. Or not yet, anyway. Have you heard of Tunguska in Russia? This was the site of the last known large-body impact on the Earth's surface nearly a 100 years ago. Or, that's not strictly accurate, the meteor, which was an estimated 60 yards across, never actually touched down. The force of its entry, the compression and superheating of the air beneath it, caused it to explode some 25,000 feet above the ground. But then the term explode hardly does justice to the event. There was a detonation, a flash, a thunderclap, with the combustive power of 800 Hiroshima bombs. 30 miles away, reindeer in their loping herds were struck dead by the blast wave, and the claws of a hunter, another 30 miles beyond that, burst into flame, even as he was poleaxed to the ground. 700 square miles of Siberian forest were leveled in an instant. If the meteor had struck just five hours later, it would have exploded over St. Petersburg and annihilated every living thing in that glorious Baroque city. This was only a rock, and it was only 60 yards across. My point? You'd better get down on your knees and pray to your gods, because each year this big spinning globe we ride intersects the orbits of some 20 million asteroids, at least a thousand of which are more than half a mile in diameter. But my daughter, she's out there in the dark and the rain, walking home. Maureen and I bought her a car, a Honda Civic, the safest thing on four wheels, but the car was used, pre-owned in dealer speak, and as it happens, it's in the shop with transmission problems, and because she just had to see her friends and gossip and giggle and balance slick, multicolored clumps of raw fish and pickled ginger on conjoined chopsticks at the mall, Kimberly picked her up, and Kimberly will bring her home. Maddie has a cell phone, and theoretically she could have called us, but she didn't, or that's how it appears. And so she's walking in the rain. And Alice K. Peterman of 16 Briar Lane, white, divorced, a realtor with Hyperion, who has picked out a salad and left her glasses on the bar, loses control of her vehicle. It's just past midnight. I'm in bed with a book, naked, and hardly able to focus on the clustered words and rigid descending paragraphs, because Maureen is in the bathroom, slipping into the sheer black negligee I bought her at Victoria's Secret for her birthday. And her every sound, the creak of the medicine, medicine cabinet on its hinges, the tap running the susurrus of the brush at her teeth, electrifies me. I've lit a candle, and I'm waiting for Maureen to step into the room so that I can flick off the light. We had cocktails earlier and a bottle of wine with dinner, and we sat close on the couch and shared a joint in front of the fire because our daughter was out, and we could do that with no one the wiser. I listened to the little sounds from the bathroom, seductive sounds, maddening. I am ready, more than ready. Hey, I called, pitching my voice low. Are you coming or not? You don't expect me to wait all night, do you? Her face appears in the doorway, 
the pale lobes of her breasts and the dark nipples visible through the clinging black silk. Oh, are you waiting for me? she says, making a game of it. She hovers at the door, and I can see the smile creep across her lips, the pleasure of the moment, drawing it out. Because I thought I might go down and work in the garden for a while. It won't take long, a couple hours maybe. You know, spread a little manure, bank up some of the mulch on the roses. You'll wait for me, won't you? Then the phone rings. We stare blankly at each other through the first two rings, and then Maureen says, I'd better get it, and I say, No, no, forget it. It's nothing. It's nobody. But she's already moving. Forget it, I shout, and her voice drifts back to me. What if it's Maddie? Then I watch her put her lips to the receiver and whisper, Hello? The night of the Tugunska explosion, the skies were unnaturally bright across Europe. As far away as London, people strolled in the parks past midnight and read novels out of doors, while the sheep kept right on grazing and the birds stirred uneasily in the trees. There were no stars visible, no moon, just a pale, quivering light, as if all the color had been bleached out of the sky. But of course that midnight glow and the fate of those unhappy Siberian reindeer were nothing at all compared to what would have happened if a larger object had invaded the Earth's atmosphere. On average, objects greater than 100 yards in diameter strike the planet once every 5,000 years, and asteroids half a mile across thunder down at intervals of 300,000 years. 300,000 years is a long time in anybody's book, but if, when, such a collision occurs, the explosion will be in the million megaton range and will cloak the atmosphere in dust, thrusting the entire planet into a deep freeze and effectively stifling all plant growth for a period of a year or more. There will be no crops, no forage, no sun. There has been an accident. That is what the voice on the other end of the line is telling my wife. And the victim is Madeline Bine of 1337 Laurel Drive, according to the ID the paramedics found in her purse. The purse, with a silver clasp that has been driven half an inch into the flesh under her arm by the force of the impact, is a little thing, no bigger than a hardcover book with a ribbon-thin strap, the same purse all the girls carry as if it were part of her uniform. Is this her parent or guardian speaking? I hear my wife say, this is her mother, and then the bottom dropping out of her voice. Is she? Is she? Is she? They don't answer such questions. Don't volunteer information, not over the phone. The next 10 seconds are thunderous, cataclysmic. My wife standing there numbly with a phone in her hand as if it were some unidentifiable object she'd found in the street. Well, I fumble out of bed to search for my pants. And my shoes, where are my shoes? The car keys, my wallet. This is the true panic, the loss of faith and control, the punch to the heart and the struggle for breath. I say the only thing I can think to say just to hear my own voice, just to get things straight. She was in an accident? Is that what they said? She was hit by a car. She's, they don't know, in surgery. What hospital? Did they say what hospital? My wife is in motion now, too. The negligee ridiculous, unequal to the task, and she jerks it over her head and flings it to the floor even as she snatches up a blouse, shorts, flip-flops, anything, anything to cover her nakedness and get her out the door. The dog is whining in the kitchen. There's the sound of rain on the roof, intensifying, hammering at the gutters. 
I don't bother with shoes. There are no shoes. Shoes do not exist. And my shirt hangs limply from my shoulders, mids buttons sagging, tails hanging loose. And we're in the car now, and the driver's side wiper is beating out of sync, and the night closing on us like a fist. And then there's Chicxulub. 65 million years ago, an asteroid, or perhaps a comet, no one is quite certain, collided with the Earth on what is now the Yucatan Peninsula. Judging from the impact crater, which is 120 miles wide, this object, this big flaming ball, was some six miles across. When it came down, day became night, and that night extended so far into the future that at least 75% of all known species were extinguished, including the dinosaurs and nearly all their forms in array, and some 90% of the ocean's plankton, which in turn devastated the pelagic food chain. How fast was it traveling? The nearest estimates put it at 54,000 miles an hour, more than 60 times the speed of a bullet. Astrophysicists call such objects civilization enders and calculate the chances that a disaster of this magnitude will occur during any individual's lifetime at roughly 1 in 10,000, the same odds as dying in an auto accident in the next six months, or, more tellingly, living to be 100 in the company of your spouse. All I see is windows, an endless grid of lit windows climbing one above the other into the night as the car shoots into the emergency vehicle's only lane and slides in hard against the curb, both doors flinging open simultaneously. Maureen is already out on the sidewalk, already slamming the door behind her and breaking into a trot, and I'm right on her heels, the key still in the ignition and the light stabbing at the pale underbelly of a diagonally parked ambulance. And they can have the car. Anybody can have it and keep it forever. They'll just tell me that my daughter is all right. Just tell me, I mutter out of breath. Just tell me and it's yours. And this is a prayer, the first in a long, discontinuous string addressed to whoever or whatever may be listening. Overhead, this guy is having a seizure. Black above, quicksilver below. The rain coming down in windblown arcs. And I wouldn't even notice, but for the fact that we are suddenly, instantly wet our hair knotted and clinging and our clothes stuck like flypaper to the slick tegument of our skin. In we come, side by side, through the doors that jolt back from us in alarm, and all I can think is that the hospital is a death factory and that we have come to it like the walking dead, haggard, sallow, shoeless. My daughter, I say to the nurse at the admittance desk, she's, they called, you called, she's been in an accident. Maureen is at my side, tugging at the fingers of one hand as if she were trying to remove an invisible glove. A car. A car accident. Name? The nurse asks. About this nurse. She's young, Filipina, with opaque eyes and the bone structure of a cadaver. Every day she sees death, and it blinds her. She doesn't see us. She sees a computer screen. She sees the TV monitor mounted in the corner and the shadows that pass there. She sees the walls, the floor, the naked light of the fluorescent tube, but not us, not us. For one resounding moment that thumps in my ears and then thumps again, I can't remember my daughter's name. I could picture her leaning into the mound of textbooks spread out on the dining room table, the glow of the overhead light making a nimbus of her hair, and she glances up at me with a glum look and half a rueful smile, as if to say, it's all in a day's work for a teenager, Dad. And you're lucky you're not in high school anymore. But her name is gone. Maddie, my wife says. Madeline Bine. 
I watch, mesmerized, as the nurse's fleshless fingers maneuver the mouse, her eyes locked on the screen before her. A click, another click. The eyes lift to take us in, even as they dodge away again. She's still in surgery, she says. Where is it? I demand. What room? Where do we go? Maureen's voice cuts in then, elemental, chilling, and it's not a question she's posing, not a statement or a demand, but a plea. What's wrong with her? Another click, but this one is just for show, and the eyes never move from the screen. There was an accident, the nurse says. She was brought in by the paramedics. That's all I can tell you. It is then that I become aware that we are not alone, that there are others milling around the room, other zombies like us, hurriedly dressed and streaming water till the beige carpet is black with it. And why, I wonder, do I despise this nurse more than any human being I've ever encountered? This young woman, not much older than my daughter, with her hair pulled back in a bun and a white cap like a party favor perched atop it, who is just doing her job? Why do I want to reach across the counter that separates us and awaken her to a swift, sure knowledge of hate and fear and pain? Why? Ted, Maureen says, and I feel her grip at my elbow, and then we're moving again, hurrying, sweeping, practically running, out of this place, down a corridor under the glare of the lights that are a kind of death in themselves, and into a worse place, a far worse place. The thing that disturbs me about Chicxulub, aside from the fact that it erased the dinosaurs and wrought catastrophic and irreversible change, is the deeper implication that we and all our works and worries and attachments are so utterly inconsequential. Death cancels our individuality. We know that, yes, but ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny and the kind goes on. Human life and culture succeed us. That, in the absence of God, is what allows us to accept the death of the individual. But when you throw chicxulub into the mix, or the next chicxulub, the chicxulub that could come howling down to obliterate all and everything, even as your eyes skim the lines of this page, where does that leave us? You're the parents. We are in another room, gone deeper now, the loudspeakers murmuring their eternal incantations. Dr. Condrosoma to emergency. Dr. Bell, paging Dr. Bell. And here is another nurse, grimmer, older, with lines like the strings of a tobacco pouch pulled tight around her lips. She's addressing us, me and my wife, but I have nothing to say, either in denial or affirmation. If I claim Maddie as my own, and I'm making deals again, then I'm sure to jinx her, because those powers that might or might not be, those gods of the infinite and the minute, will see how desperately I love her, and they'll take her away just to spite me for refusing to believe in them. Voodoo, hoodoo, Santeria, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. I hear Maureen's voice emerging from a locked vault, the singled, whispered monosyllable, and then, is she going to be all right? I don't have that information, the nurse says, and her voice is neutral, robotic even. This is not her daughter. Her daughter's at home, asleep in a pile of teddy bears, pink sheets, fluffy pillows, the nightlight glowing like the all-seeing eye of a sentinel. I can't help myself. It's that neutrality, that maddening clinical neutrality. And can't anybody take any responsibility for anything? 
What information do you have, I say? And maybe I'm too loud. Maybe I am. Isn't that your job, for Christ's sake, to know what's going on here? You call us up in the middle of the night? Our daughter's hurt. She's been in an accident. And you tell me you don't have any fucking information? People turn their heads. Eyes burn into us. They're slouched in orange plastic chairs, stretched out on the floor, praying, pacing, their lips moving in silence. They want information, too. We all want information. We want news, good news. It was all a mistake. Minor cuts and bruises. Contusions, that's the word. And your daughter, son, husband, grandmother, first cousin twice removed, will be walking through that door over there any minute. The nurse drills me with a look. And then she's coming out from behind the desk, a short woman, dumpy, almost a dwarf, and striding briskly to her door, which swings open on another room, deeper yet. If you'll just follow me, please, she says. Suddenly, sheepish, I duck my head and comply, two steps behind Maureen. This room is smaller, an examining room with a set of scales and charts, and charts on the walls, and its slab of a table covered with a sheet of antiseptic paper. Wait here, the nurse tells us, already shifting her weight to make her escape. The doctor will be in in a minute. What doctor, I want to know? What for? What does he want? But the door has, has already drawn closed. I turn to Maureen. She's standing there in the middle of the room, afraid to touch anything, or to sit down, or even to move for fear of breaking the spell. She's listening for footsteps, her eyes fixed on the door. I hear myself murmur her name, and then she's in my arms, sobbing. And I know I should hold her, know that we both need it, the human contact, the love and support. But all I feel is the burden of her. There is nothing and no one that can make this better. Can't she see that? I don't want to console or be consoled. I don't want to be touched. I just want my daughter back. Maureen's voice comes from so deep in her throat I can barely make out what she's saying. It takes a second to register. Even as she pulls away from me, her face crumpled and red, and this is her prayer, whispered aloud. She's going to be all right, isn't she? Sure, I say. Sure she is. She'll be fine. She'll have some bruises, that's for sure, maybe a couple broken bones even. And I trail off, trying to picture it. The crutches, the cast, the band-aids, the gauze. Our daughter returned to us in a halo of shimmering light. Maybe she broke her arm. She could break her arm. That would, or her leg, even her leg. But why would she be in surgery? Why would she be in surgery so long? Why? Why would that be? I don't have an answer for that. I don't want to have an answer. It was a car, Maureen says. A car, Ted. A car hit her. The room seems to tick and buzz with the fading energy of the larger edifice, and I can't help thinking of the conjury of wires strung inside the walls, the cables bringing power to the x-ray lab, the EKG and EEG machines, the life support systems, and of the myriad pipes and the fluids that they drain. A car. 3,000 pounds of steel, chrome, glass, iron. What was she even doing walking like that? She knows better than that. My wife nods, the wet ropes of her hair beating on her shoulders like the flails of the penitents. She probably had a fight with Kimberly. 
I bet that's it. I'll bet anything. Where is the son of a bitch? I snarl. The doctor, where is he? We're in that room, in that purgatory of a room, for a good hour or more. Twice I thrust my head out the door to give the nurse an annihilating look. But there is no news, no doctor, nothing. And then, at quarter past two, the inner door swings open, and there he is. A man too young to be a doctor, an infant with a smooth, bland face, and hair that rides a wave up, a wave up off his brow, and he doesn't have to say a thing. Not a word, because I can see what he's bringing us, and my heart seizes with the shock of it. He looks at Maureen, looks to me, then drops his eyes. I'm sorry, he says. When it comes, the meteor will punch through the atmosphere and strike the earth in the space of a single second, vaporizing on impact and creating a fireball that will, in that moment, achieve temperatures of 60,000 degrees Kelvin, or 10 times the surface reading of the sun. If it is Chicxulub size and it hits one of our land masses, some 200,000 cubic kilometers of the Earth's surface will be thrust up into the atmosphere, even as the thermal radiation of the blast sets fire to the Earth's cities and forests. This will be succeeded by seismic and volcanic activity on a scale unknown in human history, and, the, and then the dark night of cosmic winter. If it should land in the sea, as the Chicxulub meteor did, it would spew superheated water into the atmosphere instead, extinguishing the light of the sun and triggering the same scenario of seismic catastrophe and eternal winter, while simultaneously sending out a rippling ring of water three miles high to rock the continents as if they were saucers in a dishpan. So what does it matter? What does anything matter? We are powerless. We are bereft. And the gods, all the gods of all the ages combined, are nothing but a rumor. The gurney is the focal point in a room of gurneys, people laid out as if there'd been a war, the beaked noses of the victims poking up out of the maze of sheets like a series of topographic blips on a glaciated plain. These people are alive still, fluids dripping into their veins, machines monitoring their vital signs, nurses hovering over them like ghouls, but they'll be dead soon, all of them. That much is clear. But the gurney, the one against the back wall with the sheet pulled up over the impossibly small and reduced form, this is all that matters. The doctor leads us across the room, speaking in a low voice of internal injuries, a ruptured spleen, trauma, the brainstem, and I can barely control my feet. Can I tell you how hard it is to lift a sheet? Thin percale, and it might as well be made of lead, iron, iridium, might as well be the repository of all the dark matter in the universe. The doctor steps back, hands folded before him. The entire room or triage ward or whatever it is holds its breath. Maureen moves in beside me till our shoulders, till our shoulders are touching, till I can feel the flesh and the heat of her pressing into me and I think of this child we made together, this thing under the sheet, and the hand clenches at the end of my arm, the fingers there, prehensile, taking hold, 
The sheet draws back millimeter by millimeter, the slow striptease of death, and I can't do this, I can't, until Maureen lunges forward and jerks the thing off in a single violent motion. It takes us a moment, the shock of the bloated and discolored flesh, the crusted mat of blood at the temple and the rag of the hair, this obscene violation of everything we know and expect and love before the surge of joy hits us. Maddie is a redhead, like her mother, and though she's 17, she's as rangy and thin as a child, with oversized hands and feet, and she never did pierce that smooth, sweet run of flesh beneath her lower lip. I can't speak. I'm rushing still with the euphoria of this new mainline drug I've discovered, soaring over the room, the hospital, the whole planet. Maureen says it for me. This is not our daughter. Our daughter is not in the hospital. Our daughter is asleep in her room, beneath the benevolent gaze of the posters on the wall, Brittany and Brad and Justin, her things scattered under her as if laid out for a rummage sale. Our daughter has in fact gone to Hanasushi at the mall as planned, and Kimberly has driven her home. Our daughter has, unbeknownst to us or anyone else, fudged the rules a bit. The smallest thing in the world, nothing really, the sort of thing every teenager does without thinking twice. She has loaned her ID to her second best friend, Christy Cherwin, because Christy is 16 and wants to see, is dying to see, the movie at the Cineplex with Brad Pitt in it, the one-rated NC-17. Our daughter doesn't know that we've been to the hospital, doesn't know about Alex, Alice K. Peterman and the Pinot Noir and the glasses left on the bar, doesn't know that even now the phone is ringing at the Cherwins. I am sitting on the couch with the drink, staring into the ashes of the fire. Maureen is in the kitchen with a mug of Ovaltine, gazing vacantly out the window, where the first streaks of light have begun to limb the trunks of the trees. I try to picture the Cherwins. They've been to the house a few times, Ed and Lucinda, and I draw a blank, a blank until a backlit scene from the past presents itself, a cookout at their place, the adults gathered around the grill with gin and tonics, the radio playing some forgotten song, the children, our daughters, riding their bikes up and down the cobbled drive, making a game of it, spinning, dodging, lifting the front wheels from the ground, even as their hair fans, fans out behind them and the sun crashes through the trees. Flip a coin ten times, and it could turn, he he turn up heads ten times in a row, or not once. The rock is coming, the new chicxulub hurtling through the dark and the cold to remake our fate. But not tonight. Not for me. For the Cherwins, it's already here. Great. So thanks for the great choice of a story, Jim, and for the great reading of it. Um, I know you've been interested for some time in the f function of fictional elements in basically non-fictional texts and vice versa, the function of non-fictional elements in, in basically fictional texts. And it seems to me that you've chosen Chicxulub precisely because it's such a brilliant example of the, the latter of these things, the, the, the uh, non-fictional elements in a fictional text. So could you start there and talk about why this aspect of it is interesting and, and how, 
how it works in this story. Right. Yeah, I was really fascinated by that, partly because it's, um, you know, it's it's uh, on the surface anyway. It seems like it's like this external factual information, uh, you know. Um, just kind of dumped into the middle of the story at these particular points, right? Um, and and then you know the story goes back and forth between the fictional, you know, standard kind of fictional thing, right? Uh, you know, when I think about narrative progression, I think about instabilities, complications, resolutions, and obviously we're we're getting that with, uh, you know, my daughter is out walking, you know, at night at, and she's in peril, right, and all that, but. So we have that story told, and then inserted into that story are all these passages about civilization-ending events, right, which come from a science, science textbook or geology book or something like that, right? And so I was interested in that, that kind of radical juxtaposition of these two significantly different kinds of discourse but then also the way in which it seems to me Boyle um, sort of integrates the nonfictional stuff. And then there's a couple things about it that I'll just sort of start with. One is that he does very much make it part of Ted, our character narrator's uh, storytelling um, in the sense that, um, you know, like the, the transition to the first one is... Um, but that's not what I want to talk about. You know, I want to talk about this, Togunska, right? And so there's already this perspective being, um, uh, you know, uh, framing the nonfictional stuff, right? And at the end of the paragraph about Togunska, he says, uh, my point, right? And so he's aware of that. And he's, he, I think then, in a way, he, he's getting his narrative interested in, in this relationship. Um, so, so we have this, um, you know, perspectival um, angle on the nonfictional material. Then the other thing I think is really um, sort of at Boyle's level, where the um, juxtaposition um, of the two, you know, the fictional standard fictional story and and the nonfictional stuff. Um, becomes a kind of um, engine of the progression in the sense of setting up a kind of readerly dynamics to have us start to make connections between these two parts of the story. Um, and then it seems to me also that Boyle does this really interesting job of keeping them separate, um, but, you know, Getting us to start thinking about our, how they're relating, um, the, you know, helped in some way by the character narrator uh, with his perspective, um, and then at the very end, merging them. Right, they converge in the last paragraphs, and 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 I think a lot of the power of the story um, comes from that progression and that that convergence. Um, do you have any? Any inclination to, to treat those cosmic ap apocalyptic passages as as though they were symptoms of Ted's psychological straight, uh, state? When I first read the story, it, it, um, I went to the to the thought that this is a kind of uh, evasion or distraction 
on his part, a, a kind of um, detaching himself from the immediate situation. Ultimately, I had to correct that, but that's that was yeah. the way I read it first time through. Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. And what, but what it, what it sort of does to me is point to something else about his situation, which is that he's trying to figure out how to tell the story, right? How how do I convey what this was like uh, to me? And you know, that's not what I want to talk about, right? If I just stay with um, what happened with Maddie, I'm not going to communicate how I was feeling, right? And even if I stay with how I was feeling, I'm not going to. I'm not going to get to the scale of it. And so I turn to this. And yeah, maybe at first it looks like mm. evasion or, you know, displacement or something. Um, but I think part of the, you know, success of the story, uh, for me at least, is that um, it, it, it makes sense, right? I, I, I sort of come to understand that, okay, this is a coping mechanism in a way, and it's a device for trying to, you know, we think about narrative as a way of knowing and, and doing. This is a, a, a way of him, it helps him sort of know what happened to himself and to tell it to, to somebody else. Another possible approach, seems to me, would be to reframe the, these nonfictional passages as part of uh, a metaphor. Um, yes. That, that um, you know, the the though actually it's a little hard to understand exactly how the metaphor works it, it it seems to go in two different directions but you know we could frame it as the cosmic passages being a kind of figure for the literal experience of the the uh, threat of losing your daughter right, right? Um, so in you know in the old language we used to use the 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 um, Asteroids uh, would be the vehicle, and right. the loss of Maddie would be the tenor of this right. metaphor. And the whole story then is structured uh, around the metaphor. Does that work for you? Does that, is that complementary to what you, to the approach you were developing here? Yeah, I think it is yeah, right. I mean, I, I do think you know when I start to say, uh, you know, I said, well, it, you know, it's inviting the readers, readers to be inferring the relationship. And I think yes, the metaphor of that. So this is, this is sort of like. Um, in order to, to capture um, what this feels like, um, I have to scale up, or, or you know, I can scale up this way, and 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 oh, you know, this is a sort of then the, the personal, the individual, um, the you know, mother, father, daughter, um, you know, the sense of, of of loss and disaster that's impending. Right. The best way I can capture that is by going to geological scale, having the whole civilization wiped out, you know, by some uh, event, which is also seems to be random. Right. The, the you know, the, all these asteroids are out there. These are the chances I can talk about the, you know, what the probabilities are and so on. And and this this is being visited upon us. Uh, I shared with you the other day my suspicion that uh, that Boyle, um, consciously or unconsciously, might have been um, ironically literalizing a metaphorical cliche, right? Um, right? The one we use when we're trying to persuade someone that a, a minor catastrophe really is minor, really is trivial, we say to them, it's not the end of the world. Right. Um, well, you know, only somebody who is, you know, incredibly callous or cruel would say that 
uh, to Ted and Maureen. It's it's yeah. it's not the end of the world. You know, it's it's only yeah. the loss of your daughter, right? Yeah. Yeah. But from a certain perspective, uh, you know, from a cosmic perspective, um, it isn't the end of the world. Um, the loss of one teenage right. girl is is not commensurate with the loss of a planet. Um, um, and, 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 you know, so m my sense was that, that he was playing with this cliche and flipping it over and saying, um, after all, for these people, it does feel like it is the other world. Exactly, exactly. And, and that's, that's it, that, you know, that sense of how do I convey what it felt like, right? And, and this, this is the, this is the, um, Mechanism. Um, this is the means by which I can do it. This is the best I can do, um, and you know it, it's it's also the in addition to, to the idea that okay it's the end of the world. It's also the kind of um, randomness and the impersonality of it, right? And there, I mean that that you know the civilization enters. It, it's just you know nature doing its thing, right? Or the um, Movement of the pl of the planets and the you know uh, celestial bodies and so on, right? But what's interesting there, I think, is that um, there's this uh, paradox in the application, right? Because at the one at one point, then Ted says, "Well, so what? It makes everything inconsequential, right? And and if in fact it makes everything inconsequential, if it's going to be a perfect match." Then, in an odd way, that could be consoling, right? But it's totally not consoling, right? Um, it's it's back to it's the end of my world. It's the end of our world. It's it's, it's my civilization ender. Whether or not we think of um, uh, Boyle literalizing a, a cliche here, um, uh, you know. Whether whether we go that route or or just the, the route you've been developing here about th that relation between fiction and nonfiction, um, do we come out thinking maybe the story is gimmicky, maybe too gimmicky? Uh, is that a risk? Um, I do think it's very much a risk, right? Um, and and I suppose different readers will come out differently, and you know, and that's fine. Then we can talk about well, you know, why do you, why do you come down on the side of gimmicky, and why don't you? Um, I come down on the side that it's uh, it, it's very risky, um, but ultimately I think it works, and I think it works um, partly because of some of the things I've been saying, um, but also because of the way um, he brings it together at the end, um, and there is a kind of uh, in a way. Um, a, a reckoning with his own metaphor, right? Um, as as he realizes, okay, it didn't happen, you know, it, you know, um, it hasn't come for me, right? But then there are other layers to that, right? That we, you and I, want to get into, right? And maybe we'll we'll um, reserve that for a minute and and sort of pause to um, backtrack to some of the the basic. Narratological apparatus, I guess, of the story. Right? You mentioned earlier the narratee, which is a feature, uh, you know, a, a, an actual manifest narratee, and and um, along with that, the um, 
use the present tense throughout right. the story. Um, so maybe maybe you could say a few things about just that apparatus, um, right. which is basic to the story. Right, right. So with the narrative, I mean, I, I, I don't think we have a characterized narrative. I think we have a, a kind of, a, but again, the general sense of, well, how do I communicate this, right? And there is presence of that narrative, you know, right away. Um, uh, you know, and there's a couple of views, uh, use the direct use of the second person. So there's very much, in that sense, there's, a, there's a, the act of trying to come to terms with it so that he can explain it to somebody becomes, I think, part of the story. It, it, that there's a sort of a, a kind of, we might say, a sub-progression of um, Ted's relationship to the telling of the story that, that sort of runs along with everything else that we've been talking about. Um, and I think the you know, having a narrative is crucial to that. Um, the, the, the present tense, the use of the present tense is... Um, I think one of maybe the more subtle things and one of the um, things that I think also helps um, sort of give a particular kind of force to the ending. Um, because it seems to me that we have um, two different kinds of present tense. We have the historical present of um, what happens to Maddie and and the historical present of their discovery of what happens to Maddie, you know. Um, there's, and I think the Boyle marks the historical present in various ways by uh, indicating that Ted has knowledge about you know subsequent events um, that you know that he gets sort of after the present uh, of the action that he's telling, right? Um, so, so, but again, I, but I, th I think one of the so you could ask, well, why not just use the past tense, right? And I think, it, again, it goes back to the subplot of uh, the subprogression of how is he going to tell the story. He wants, and Boyle wants, to give us that sense of the experiential quality of it. And, and sort of so to, to kind of immerse himself and his narrative and for Boyle, his audience, in the moment-by-moment feeling and response uh, the fear the anxiety the anger all that stuff right the historical present really allows that to happen and and to, for it to unfold without any clear sense of a retrospection that okay we're on the other side of this right so I think that that choice works really well then with the um, non-fictional material uh, I think what we had is a a present of the telling, time of the telling, present tense, right? So in that juxtaposition of the um, fictional and the non-fictional, we're also having this shifting from the historical present to the present of the telling. And then I think it, 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 that's also, that also converges in that last, the last two paragraphs, right? Uh, now I'm sitting, right? Um, it's, the events are basically over, you know, um, um, and... Here I am with a drink, and here are my final reflections, right? And and Chicxulub comes back there too, right? So so finally comes together, and and that's 
I think I think it's you know it's, he doesn't he's not fancy about that or you know watch my you know tricks with temporality or chronology or anything like that but but I think that's working there and 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 part of the force of the ending really depends on that. So let's talk a little bit more about the ending. Yeah. Um, um, you know, like many classic short stories, uh, Chick Shalhoub arguably has a twist ending, right. which seems to me a very inadequate way of talking about what happens there. So how would you talk about it? What, you know, how does the ending work? Yeah. Well, I think for me, the things that are... Um, uh, let me talk quickly about the twist and then talk about bigger things, what yes. seems to me even more important, like sort of affect and ethics yes. and the relationship between them. But they, I think uh, the twist, like, like all good twists, um, is prepared for. Right, we have these. He he drops these. Uh, Doyle, uh, Boyle has uh, Ted. You know, make these various asides, which then we can look back on and reconfigure and say, oh, okay, you know. Um, um, so you know things like oh the um, you know the 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 pocketbook being driven into her. Um, uh, arm, right? Well, that's or hand, right? That that's a pocketbook that everybody has, right? Or um, or the or so it seems, right? This kind of stuff. Um, so um, in that sense, I think okay, you know, this is one could imagine it, and and he's also, I think, you know, again, you can say he's carefully arranged all this. Why would why would she be out there and so on? Well, the cars in the shop and. You know uh, those kinds of things, and uh, and then well, you know, why would she be? Why would there be the mistaken identity? Well, because she lent her ID, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, so, but I think you know again the the twist and the the initial force of the twist uh, works again. Partly, this is another reason for the historical present tense, right? And the moment by moment unfolding of the responses um, but that then also allows for what seems to me the really kind of punch of the story and the one of the reasons why it seems to me more than gimmicky is the way in which you know, we get this moment of joy at the you know the discovery that okay that's not Madeline um, and and then the slow kind of recognition, and partly, you know, as a result of the um, Chicxulub metaphor, that well, what I just went through with Maddie is going to be the fate of the Cherwins with Christie, you know, and and that's, you know, I think it's very moving, really. So. In the end, does Boyle intend for us to think of Ted's moment of euphoria in finding it's the wrong dead girl? Are, are we supposed to find that reprehensible? No. I, I, um, even since we you know, had a brief conversation about this the other uh, day, I've been thinking about it. it. It sort of fits what I would call a kind of um, bonding unreliable um, narration, bonding, unreliable um, uh, uh, ethics on, on the ethics of ethics, because um, the, I think it's Boyle's 
you know, partly because he's bringing us along with it. Right? We're so we're so close to Ted all along that that moment of joy is totally understandable, right? I thought my world was over, and now it's not. And wow, wow, right? But it's also a moment when the feeling sort of blocks out everything else. And and I do think, and especially on rereading, right, that Boyle wants his readers to recognize that there's something missing here, that there's something is blocked out. Um, so it's totally understandable, and in that sense, it's 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 I think of it as bonding, but it's also, you know, inadequate in some sense. In that sense, it's a kind of unreliable thing. Um, but I also think it's important that. You know, he moves, right? He doesn't just sort of stay with his own joy. He is able to think beyond himself to the, the phone call at the Cherwins and think about them, think about that moment, you know, when their kids play together and what, you know, how then with that phone call the Cherwins are going to be living what he just lived through. And I think in just about every sense, that brings us to the end. Okay. So thanks, Jim. Um, Thank you, Brian. That was was great. Thank you for hosting. And thanks to our uh, listeners out there in uh, podcast land for joining us. We're happy to receive feedback from you, um, either on our Facebook page or at projectnarrative at osu.edu or on our Twitter account, pn at Ohio State. Uh, the next guest in this series of podcasts, which is episode nine, for those of you who are keeping count, um, will be Sean O'Sullivan. Sean will read and discuss with Jim the tweet-based story Black Box by Jennifer Egan, also a New Yorker story, which has now been folded into Egan's latest novel, The Candy House. So look for that podcast to be available sometime in June. Uh, goodbye for now. Keep listening. Thanks again, Jim. Thank you, Brian.